Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. NASA does a lot more than mapping our solar system. They have always been mapping our oceans for over 20 years. The ocean is extremely important in our Earth's health, circulation, and economy, so it is equally important that our ocean is in good health, too. In 2022, NASA will be launching the PACE mission, which stands for Plankton Aerosol Cloud Ocean Ecosystem, to further advance their understanding of our oceanic and atmospheric health. Today's guest is Ivona Setinik, who is the project science lead for ocean biogeochemistry on this mission, and she's devoted her entire life and career, I should say, to better understanding our world's ocean, perhaps your entire life too. Ivana, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It's super awesome to be here talking well, it's to you always- as well. It's always awesome to talk to a, uh, a NASA colleague uh, as someone that spent many of uh, a day in, at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center where you're located today speaking with, with us. And let me give the listeners a little bit of your background before we get started. Uh, she's the senior scientist at the Uni- University Space Research Association, or USRA, at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center and an oceanographer in the Ocean Ecology Lab there at Goddard. Uh, she has served as the project scientist for the Exports Mission or Exports Project, which is a field campaign. We'll probably talk about it. And is the project science lead for the ocean biogeochemistry part of the PACE mission. And don't worry if you don't know what PACE is. By the end of this podcast, you will. Uh, she's also an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Maine. Uh, there are many other things that you'll learn about her, but let's dive in with a question I always ask Weather Geeks guests. How did you get into oceanography? Is it something you were interested in since you were a kid, or is it something more recent? Well, I was thinking about that question because I listened to your podcast. I was thinking, okay, that's the question you're going to ask me. And I didn't think there was any other choice. Um, I think I was I was raised on the sea and kind of like spent my whole life on the sea. And one thing led to another, and I just ended up being an oceanographer, you know, like you make choices in your life and they just, whatever choice you make brings you back to that thing. I always loved the ocean. My whole family, um, both of my sides of the family come from the small islands in Croatia. So I think there's just love and dependency in the ocean brought me to kind of go into the studying oceanography, understanding what it, where, where is all this beauty coming from. So yeah, I think that was it, you know, since I was a kid probably. Yeah, and that that's very similar to many of the meteorologists that come on the show. Now, you have a Bachelor of Science in Biology and Ecology from the University of Zagreb, Croatia, a PhD in Marine Biology and Biological Oceanography from the University of Southern California as well. I'm curious, are there any differences between the bodies of water on the Eastern Hemisphere where you grew up in Croatia and the bodies of water in the Western Hemisphere where, we, where you live now? Or is it fundamentally all the same? Well, I mean... It's all one ocean, but there are really big differences. I was raised in Adriatic Sea that was part of Mediterranean. Mediterranean has its own beauty and sweetness. You know, anybody who comes from Mediterranean is going to say, oh, this is the most beautiful place in the, in the world and it's the most beautiful ocean. In a sense, it is. Adriatic is very clear. Uh, our side is very clear, really beautiful. Um, there's really not too much things that I currently study 
So the phytoplankton, the algae, there's not too many of them, but the the ocean there is beautiful. And then I remember first time when I saw the true ocean, it was the Atlantic Ocean. I was in Portugal in my undergrad. That was the first time that I saw a real ocean. It was like, whoa. Um, it was really just, it's, it's, you know, you're afraid of it, but you love it and you understand it. Then I you know moved to L.A., um, to do my um, graduate degrees in, in oceanography, and then I fell in love with the Pacific because it's a, it's, it has its own story, has its own song. And there's big differences. It's just um, oceans are truly gigantic body of water. You have to honor them. You have to respect them. But, you know, you can love them. Um, but, like, Mediterranean Adriatic is like just like cuddly teddy bear. I mean, it can be very dangerous, but for me, it's cuddly teddy bear. And then there's, like, big differences in, in the way that ecosystems fu- function and... Um, for example, so like everything what I study revolves around these algae, these microscopic plants in the ocean. And when we talk about um, open oceans, usually what we think about what's limiting the growth and their existence is the availability of different nutrients, so fertilizers. No? In open oceans, usually nitrate, but in, in Adriatic and Mediterranean, it's phosphate. So once I switched from doing oceanography in Adriatic to open ocean, I had to completely switch the philosophy, the way I think about how they grow, what is limiting them, and, you know, how does the ecosystem work? And we are talking all about the PACE mission, and I promise you we'll get to the PACE mission because I know as as someone who currently chairs NASA's Earth Science Advisory Committee at at NASA headquarters how important the PACE mission is for NASA. But before we specifically go into PACE, can you give the Weather Geeks listeners are 101 on why we measure things about the Earth from space. Why can't we just go out in ships or with buoys or things that we call in situ observations? What's what's the importance of space-based observations for what you do? So ocean is vast, and it's studying, once you study ocean, it's not easy as just jump in a truck and go check out a tree or, or a mountain or anything. Most parts of the ocean are very inaccessible. Um, and majority of the life in the ocean is microscopic. So the way that we would study it is by taking a sample of water, spending lots of time in expensive um, methods to, to understand that teeny tiny portion of water, just like a cup of water. And it doesn't really give us a synoptic view of the oceans. And oceans are one of the systems of the Earth. And Earth is a system of systems. So having these satellites, they can give us synoptic global view of the oceanic life um, it's unpre- it gives this unprecedented view that is really important to understand how ocean lives, how does it change, and how does it interact with the rest of the systems on the Earth so we can actually understand Earth. But also, like, development of the um, Earth-observing satellites is, I mean, think about if you're really, like, a space geek, Earth is a perfect laboratory. If you want to develop tools to study life somewhere else, you first want to develop to study develop them on Earth and deploy them around the Earth, see that they work, and then send them to the moons or or new places they were going to discover and search for life there. there. Yeah, now I want to pivot with that nice introduction to the PACE mission. And PACE is an acronym. I mentioned it earlier, Plankton, Aerosol, Cloud, and Ocean Ecosystem. I want to play a little alphabet game here and go through each letter. So let's start with P, phytoplankton. Why should the average listener of weather geeks care about phytoplankton? Well, phytoplankton first, just going to give you back in biology 101, 
Phytoplankton are microscopic plank-like organisms that are air in the ocean, in the lit portion of the ocean. And you should care about them because, A, they give you oxygen that you breathe. Around 50% of the oxygen on Earth is there thanks to the phytoplankton. B, they're the base of marine food web. Majority of the carbon that is inside of the ocean comes from the phytoplankton, converting carbon dioxide into organic carbon. And third, they control the climate. They're drawing down this carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and inserting it into the marine food web. So therefore, like, they do three things. They give you food, they give you oxygen you breathe, and they give you pretty much a house that you live in. And have phytoplankton distributions or populations at all been impacted by warming oceans? Oh, yes. So once again, going back to the importance of the ocean color satellites and, and how they give us the synoptic view of the ocean, one thing that we have um, seen from the 20 years, longer than 20 years observation of the um, oceanic domain is the distribution of the phytoplankton has changed um, significantly, something that we can observe. For example, um, Southern Ocean um, is usually not such a productive area of the ocean because it it doesn't have all those nutrients, those fertilizers that I was mentioning before, actually likes iron to support this phytoplankton growth. And during the, the changes in the temperature of the ocean and just climate-induced changes, the areas of this desert, so non-productive areas of the Southern Ocean, is actually widening. And we saw that um, thanks to the remote sensing uh, satellites. That's one of, just one of the examples. Very interesting. I'm talking with NASA oceanographer Ivana Setinik, and we're working our way through the PACE mission, and you are going to be an expert on many aspects of what the PACE mission is all about. Uh, we're talking about the P, phytoplankton in that acronym, and we were just talking about phytoplankton and climate change, but there's another sort of component of the P, if you will, and that's algae or algal blooms. How do algal blooms factor into sort of the scientific equation here? Uh, they can, some can be beneficial, I imagine, but others are harmful. Can you distinguish? Yes. Yeah, so going back to the current ocean color, satellites can, in theory, see green. They're limited. What they they can really not see the diversity of these phytoplankton, and they're highly diverse. Like you know, think about diversity of all the plants that you've ever seen on the land. That's nothing in comparison to phytoplankton. So they're highly diverse, and different phytoplankton have different roles. And as you said it yourself beautifully, some of the blooms are awesome, some of the blooms are bad. And currently, we cannot distinguish that. Phytopace uh, with its approach is going to be able to distinguish naughty phytoplankton from good phytoplankton. So for example, my favorite bloom in the world is the one that happens every springtime in North Atlantic. And that's the one, if you look at the ocean color images, you see this like explosion of green. It's like, you know, think about your grass in front of the house in the springtime. It's like that. And it's just going wild and then blooming. And what happens is that the little zooplankton comes up, and these are the little teeny tiny animals. They're going to eat that phytoplankton. And the little bit bigger zooplankton comes up, and they're going to eat that zooplankton. And then the fishies come up, and they're going to eat that stuff, and so on and so on. And in the end, you have that cod that is served to you on dinner. And that, that phytoplankton bloom really propels the life in North Atlantic. But it's also important for the carbon export because some of these phytoplankton will die and sink out of the uh, out of the surface of the ocean like leaves and take that naughty carbon down into the deep ocean. That's the good phytoplankton bloom. On the other side, you have naughty phytoplankton bloom. So going back to California, where I did my PhD, I, I studied red tides and pseudonychia blooms. So these are two different types of phytoplankton that we can currently not distinguish, but with PACE we will be able to. So pseudonychia produces really terrible toxin that accumulates within this food web 
and then ultimately ends up in sardines, sardines that humans can eat or birds can eat or dolphins can eat. And so we have this like big die-offs like we had a couple of years ago associated with the Pacific blob um, um, effect. Or you can have these red dyes. They're really not producing any toxins, but there's so many of these these algae accumulating. Once they die, they drop in the bottom of the shallow ocean there, and the bacteria comes and starts decomposing this this now dead phytoplankton, and they use up all the oxygen. And now all the benthic organisms, the organisms that live in the bottom of the ocean, starts dying off because there's no oxygen for them to breathe. So PACE, for difference in the current ocean color cell, is going to be able to distinguish that, which is really awesome. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with NASA oceanographer Dr. Ivana Setenik about pace, oceanography, and why we're studying the oceans from space. And I think you've already heard some very important reasons. The ocean is vast, it's expansive, but there are a lot of important things that go on in the ocean that surprisingly, perhaps to you, tie back to us. Oxygen, for example, and the the marine life and seafood that you may eat and fish and so forth. So very important. And I think the oceans often, at least from the standpoint of people that may listen to Weather Geeks, uh, which are typically people fascinated by weather, climate and other things. It's always important for people to understand the role of the ocean and how it is connected to the atmosphere and the broader Earth system in general. So with that, I would like to move to the A in pace aerosol. First of all, tell us what an aerosol means. We're not talking about an aerosol can or spray can or for something for your hairspray. Talk about what aerosols are and why they're important and what pace is going to contribute. So aerosols, think about think about them as little particles in the atmosphere. You know, think about any kind of like, you know, everybody probably saw some science fiction movies or big dust domes coming out of Sahara. That's your aerosol. So these are dust particles or particles that can be either produced by natural um, reason so it's like for for example the Sahara dust um, dust storm or it can be produced by humans so once the we do naughty stuff and and have factories and everything one portion we release the gases but we also release these teeny tiny particles that we refer to as aerosols and um, they might not be so cool as like dolphins and, and phytoplankton and things like that but they're extremely important for climate um, when you think about um, aerosols we really don't know really well but different types of aerosols, just because there's so many different ones and their sources are different, but their biggest sources of uncertainty in climate models and radiation models. That's what PACE is going to be, you know, really focusing on understanding, let's say, different types of uh, aerosols and how do they interact uh, with their environment. In a sense, like in the same way we're going to be studying the diversity of the phytoplankton and their interaction with the environment, we're going to be looking at diversity of the aerosols and their interaction with their environment, so aerosol ecology. <laughs> Something and I would add to that by noting, because we often talk about climate change on this program in various contexts, and we know climate change is happening, and there's a significant anthropogenic contribution. But 
We also like to be scientifically sound and rigorous in this podcast. And one of the areas of uncertainty when we talk about the radiative budget or this sort of sort of equation that we try to understand in terms of the amount of energy coming in and out of the atmosphere one of the big uncertainties for the climate models is aerosols. And so we need better understanding of their spatial and temporal distribution. In other words, where they are and how often they're changing. And so uh, a satellite mission like PACE can provide additional information to extend the record of aerosol measurements that I know NASA and other space agencies have, have been collecting from other satellite missions as well, which takes me to another big uncertainty in the climate models, clouds. And that's what the C is in, in PACE, cloud. So what is PACE going to help us with? And, and oh, by the way, before we even get to clouds, can you talk about the context? With the, I mean, again, this is Weather Geek, so we can geek out a little bit. Can you talk about the types of instruments? that Are, are these infrared, visible, microwave, active sensors, passive sensors? Um, but clouds, that's the next one. So talk about clouds in, in general, what some of the sort of instruments we're going to be seeing on pace are okay cool so let's go to letter c and i'll try to weave in all the instruments that we have because it's not just a single one that we're flying so clouds everybody knows clouds probably your listeners know a lot about clouds because they're weather geeks so what pace is going to be doing is going to be observing clouds but it's not going to be observation like you know typical weather geostationary satellites are going to observe it's really going to look at once again in type of clouds and, and try to find a better way to distinguish different types of clouds but from the perspective of this radiation budget and really, really, really try to like focus on this interaction between clouds and aerosols because as we said previously, like aerosols are big sources of uncertainty, but even bigger source of uncertainty in all these models is this interaction between the clouds and aerosols. So in order to do so, uh, PACE is going to have like three different instruments. The first the first and most important instruments in this like mothership of PACE is something that we refer to as OCI because it's NASA and we like acronyms now. So OCI stands for Ocean Color Instrument. And this is a hyperspectral spectrograph that for the first time is going to be able to see all the colors of the rainbow and go a little bit into UV. So every five nanometers, we're going to have a band that's going to be observing the clouds, aerosols, and ocean. And we're going to go all the way to infrared and we're going to have seven wavelengths there several channels in infrared. And those those channels are mostly focusing on clouds and aerosols and something that we do to see the ocean, which is atmospheric correction. But majority of this UV and visible spectra is going to be focusing really on the ocean. But then on top of that, as a freebie, we got two uh, through our collaborators, we got through polarimeters. They're going to be flying on the same uh, spacecraft. And uh, both of these are really focusing on aerosols and clouds. Um, one of them is called HARP2. And it's a hyperangular um, polarimeter that's going to be looking at the pretty much scattering of the light from the surface of the ocean through the atmosphere in different angles and looking at the polarization aspect because due to the composition of the aerosols and the clouds, the, the way that the behavior of the light um, changes, it can be related back to the optical properties of the clouds and, and um, just atmospheric components as well as the ocean. That one, HARP2, is coming from uh, University of Maryland, um, Baltimore County, and, and really cool stuff. Like, I think a week or two ago, they just launched HARP1, which is a nanocube satellite, and it's flying happily around the Earth, and hopefully soon we're going to start getting data. There's the first polarimeter. So it's just like an attachment to our existing spacecraft um, that's going to be carrying this ocean color instrument. The second polarimeter is coming from our um, collaborators down in Netherlands. Uh, it's called SPEX1, and similar to HARP, 
it's a polarimeter but this one is looking in hyperspectral way to several angles and once again honing into the, the properties of the clouds and properties of the aerosol so having these three instruments looking at the space same point in space and time is going to be unprecedented because not only is going to be honing on P and A and C of this alphabet that we practiced with, but it's also going to allow us to look at the interaction between A and C, so aerosol and clouds, but also interaction between the ocean and aerosol and clouds, because this is a very, very important triangle when it comes to the Earth being a system of systems. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a message that should be loud and clear to many in the public, but often isn't. It's just how connected these systems are. Uh, the aerosols are so much uh, related to the cloud processes. The aerosol and clouds are re related to the Earth's warming or heating processes, the so-called radiative budget or radiative forcing that you often hear climate scientists talking about. But then the amount of energy that makes it to the oceans is uh, certainly impacted by the aerosol and cloud distributions as well. So PACE is going to be a workhorse. It's going to continue I think about many of NASA's previous or ongoing missions, uh, CloudSat and Calypso and various other satellites, even the GPM mission that I worked on. Um, this continues a legacy of understanding the cloud processes because we know that that's an area of uncertainty in assessing climate. For example, as our climate warms, will there be more low clouds or will there be more high clouds and ice crystals? Because they have completely different impacts on the radiative budget of the planet. So, uh, pay is really going to do quite a bit for us. And so that brings us to the last letter in PACE, E, Ocean Ecosystem. And one of the goals of PACE is to extend ocean color data records. And you've mentioned ocean color before, and I'm certainly familiar with the legacy mission SeaWIFS, which was a, an excellent mission for ocean color. Explain to the listeners why ocean color, and you've kind of alluded to this already, but why ocean color is so important and why we need to continue the record of mapping it. So, um, I mean, ocean color is probably important because I'm doing it. <laughs> On a side for that, ocean color gives us this crucial information about synoptic information about ocean ecosystem. You know, everything on land starts from plants and, and grasses and everything. If you don't have plants and grass, your cow's not going to grow. In the same way, if you don't have any knowledge about phytoplankton, you don't know how the ocean is going to uh, respond. And regardless of the fact that you're studying the displays in the ocean because of the your focus on the ecosystem or importance to the fisheries or importance to the economy or importance to the climate science. You really have to understand and have the synoptic view of the phytoplankton in the ocean. And that's where the ocean color comes from. Just presence of these little particles in the ocean will modify the way that we perceive the ocean. And that's what the idea that all the ocean colored satellites are built on. And um, the first really big mission, global mission with SeaWorks that you mentioned that was launched in 1997. So we have already 23 years of continuous observations of the ocean, and PACE is going to build on that one. So it's going to bring you everything with the previous ocean color missions have brought, which is kind of limited view of the ocean. So you know that there's phytoplankton, but you, you know it's green, but you really don't know who is there and what are they doing. But PACE, due to this hyperspectral aspect of it, is going to be able to distinguish different types of phytoplankton. Now we're talking about the ecosystem. We can say, oh, um, for example, in the Arabian Sea, you have this really cool interaction between noctiluca blooms, which is a yucky dinoflagella that turtles eat, and diatom blooms, which is like this really good bloom that is feeding ultimately the fisheries. 
So with PACE, you're going to be able to distinguish this interaction and start studying this interaction as a function of climate forcing, so for, for example, monsoon forcing, or looking at some kind of iron deposition from the nearby storms and so on. So ocean color is really the way to synoptically look at the health of the ocean. And once again, ocean is a system that is part of the Earth system. So understanding ocean pretty much gives you understanding um, what's happening for the whole Earth. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Ivona Setinik from the NASA. She's the NASA oceanographer working on the PACE mission. And you, you just heard her talking about ocean color and ocean ecosystem. I, if you get a chance, Google uh, ocean color sea whiffs and, and, and see if you can find some of the really neat videos out there from NASA, from the Scientific Visualization Studio or the NASA SVS that show sort of the trends annually and seasonal trends in ocean color from sea whiffs and, and, and now going forward from pace once we get that up. Because I often refer to this as the ocean, I'm sorry, as the earth breathing, because you can see when, when you combine the ocean color measurements with some of the sort of land-based observations as well to see the greening during the seasons, this sort of presence of these vegetation, uh, I guess these vegetation constituents in the ocean and the atmosphere are very important to the carbon cycle and sort of the uptake and sort of sources and sinks, if you will, for carbon and carbon dioxide. So I wanted to make that point. Another point I wanted to bring up that very much this listener base would understand is El Nino and La Nina. How is pace going to be relevant to our understanding of the El Nino, La Nina or the ENSO cycle? Yeah, so, um, you know, as you said it beautifully before, like, you know, this visualizations just open up your eyes and you start really thinking about the ocean, how it's like, wow, there's different ecosystems, like there's deserts, there's jungles, there's seasons. And there's, you start understanding the climate response of the ocean has. And, and that's like, that was first, pretty much the first thing that we saw, that they saw, because I was probably in elementary school or something. But when they turned on sea waves, that was 1997, there was a big El Nino um, El Nino year, and then following the summer of 1998, then they switched to El Nino. So that's the first thing that they saw. They saw this, like, pretty much empty Pacific Ocean, you know, where is all the phytoplankton? We know the phytoplankton is there. And then they switched, boom, the climate switched to the La Nina phase, and they saw this, like, gigantic blooming. And that was the first thing that they see. <laughs> like, you know, you just imagine, like, whoa. And, and that gave them a true understanding what kind of powerful tool do they have with these oceanic color missions. Now, they can really see right away the response that phytoplankton, this, this oceanic ecosystem, have on the climate forcing, such as La Nina La Nina. So once again, I mean, PACE, but its power is going to continue this 20-year, 23-year-long observations of the ocean, so we're going to be able to see the cycles. But what PACE is going to bring is going to try to be able to distinguish which of these types of phytoplankton actually responding? Which were the ones who are first turning on? Which are the ones who are responding the strongest? Which one the ones are responding the least? Because once again, going back, and I always go back to land because it's much easier to kind of make a comparison with the land. If you have a cow, you don't want to put it in an oak forest to eat food. You want to put it on a really nice meadow with lots of green grass. The same thing goes with the phytoplankton. You, you know, if you're a fisherman, 
you're not really you know going to go fish in, in the oak forest of the ocean. You want to go fish in a meadow of the ocean. So understanding which type of phytoplankton will respond to this climate forcings, it's really important because it will change the fisheries, it will change the economy, it will change the pathways that carbon will take in the ocean that ultimately drives how long it's going to take that carbon to come back to the atmosphere, so the length of sequestration of the of the carbon. So it's going to continue whatever we've seen before, so it's going to continue our climate record, but it's also going to give us like a three-dimensional understanding of true ecosystem response to the climate forcing, such as El Niño, La Niña. And and we certainly know, for those of us living on the mainland, even though El Nino and La Nina are processes that take place in the what seemingly might be to you the far remote eastern and central Pacific Ocean, the so-called teleconnections, which is a big meteorological word we use to basically say that, that those changes in ocean characteristics, primarily temperature, impact the jet stream in the atmosphere, which impacts weather. And so El Nino and La Nina affect weather where you live, no matter where you're listening uh, through these teleconnection patterns. So among other things, in addition to the ecosystem, fisheries and so forth, uh, there are direct consequences of El Nino and La Nina on our weather patterns. Now, uh, Dr. Setnik, I'm, I'm Googling as I'm sitting here talking to you because I always like to sort of know a little bit more about the guests that I'm speaking with. And I came across a photo of you uh, on the NASA website, and it's you, it looks like, on a boat with colleagues slowly lowering some equipment into water. And it says you are testing novel instrumentation aboard Falkor for autonomous optical measurement of marine PSDs and examining implications of PSDs on carbon fluxes. So I'm guessing from that, you don't just do satellite or remote sensing. You're doing some work with in-situ observations, too. Tell us a little bit about that work. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm your classical oceanographer that just has a terrible hunger for data. And that's how I ended up... Um, in satellite oceanography. So I'm something that they call optical oceanographer, which means I try to use light to study processes in the ocean. And since I said, you know, think about plants are green, therefore if you measure, you know, how does the green behave in the ocean, you can learn something about phytoplankton and so on and so on. So similar principles that we use on, on satellites, we can use on instruments that we drop in the ocean. And ultimately, once we push that satellite in the ocean, we can't fix it anymore, no. And, and you know, the calibration, we have so many things in place to keep the calibration going. But one thing that we always do is this in-situ validation. So we go with ships and collect the data so we can actually figure out if satellites are doing good stuff. Um, but also we have to collect data to um, make algorithms, so mathematical ways of taking the color of the ocean and getting to that type of phytoplankton. So that's what I do a lot. I go on seas, I deploy um, different types of instrumentation that are kind of like in the same group of instrumentation salad, but also do classical like filtration. I do DNA, I do imaging technology, I use imaging technology to resolve the phytoplankton diversity. So diversity of this little plant. So I try to combine things in the ocean and then I sit in front of a computer for a very, very long time. And then I come up with a way to use what I've seen in the ocean to use that on the data that's coming from the satellite. Because, you know, in the end, you know, you just see the color of the ocean. From there, you have to infer so many things. So we have to go on and see a lot. But yeah, I um, I use lots of instrumentation. I use lots of autonomous vehicles. Um, you mentioned earlier exports. So this is one of these campaigns that's trying to understand how does the surface of the ocean that we see from the satellite connect to all the processes that are happening below the surface of the ocean when it comes to carbon. So I'm leading this campaign that has like, you know, three ships, 
40 different autonomous vehicles and all studying exactly these processes, the connection of the surface, the deeper ocean, and a satellite. We are wrapping up the podcast. Very fascinating discussion. Before, before I let you go, a couple of other questions. One, what would you tell an aspiring child or kid or student that wants to be an oceanographer like you? Um, just keep on going. It's, if it's not fun, don't do it. Uh, yes, there's math, but just in, as long as it's fun and think about it as a fun, just keep on doing it because it's such an it's the best job ever. Being a scientist, there's nothing better to do because you just keep on playing and you're actually doing cool stuff and they're paying you to do that. And Pace is going to launch in 2022. Is everything on schedule? I know as someone has been involved in mission work with NASA, things don't always go to as scheduled. So where are we on the schedule? Yeah, so Pace? our readiness date is late 2022. And we're really marching forward towards readiness date. We just passed a really big point last week. It's a mission critical design review. We passed with stellar, um, with stellar grades and everything is awesome. So we're just really trying to do that, get to that uh, launch readiness date, which is late 2022. And hopefully, you know, close by, we're going to launch as well. And if you ever meet Dr. Setanik or anyone that works for NASA, um, just as a sort of an FYI, don't assume they know any astronauts or, or, or work with space shuttles or, you know, NASA has a very robust Earth Sciences program and her work is a, very much a part of the Earth Sciences Division and the Science Mission Directorate. You know, NASA didn't go anywhere when they stopped launching space shuttles. I, I bring that up because I was at a concert earlier this week and the gentleman found out I used to work for NASA and he said, oh, uh, NASA's been gone for a while, but they're coming back soon. I was like, no, they never went anywhere. So, uh, yeah, that's quite a bit of very important ocean work, because I would argue that the third planet from the sun in our solar system is the most important one for us to understand. So before we get out, before we get out of here and, and give Dr. Setnick the last word, there's something I always do, and it is our Geek of the Week. This week's Geek of the Week is Patrick Highland. He is a research associate with OU SIMS. Now, what is SIMS? The Cooperative Institute for Mesoscale Meteorological Studies and NOAA's NSSL National Severe Storms Lab. Excuse me. He works on developing and testing products to transition to operations so that forecasters can provide better forecasts and warnings for the production of life protection, I should say, of life and property. Patrick used to be terrified of storms, especially thunder and lightning, but that fear led to curiosity and he knew from a young age he wanted to be a meteorologist. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages at Twitter and Facebook. Congratulations, Patrick Highland. Dr. Setnit, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Can people find you or your missions in social media anywhere? Yes. So um, if you follow NASA, and if you don't, you should. So you can follow NASA, you can follow at NASA Earth, and we have like a small little um, Twitter and Facebook profile called at NASA Ocean. We just like tweet specifically things about the ocean, try to share as much as we can. We have this big um, field campaign coming up so you can like follow live updates um, on NASA Earth and NASA Ocean. And happy Earth Day. It's the 50th anniversary, so it's coming up in a month. So happy Earth Day and follow NASA's account because we're going to make a big show uh, this year. Now, and what about you personally? Any social media out there that we can follow? Uh, yes. Um, I am. Um, you can just Google my name. Um, my name on Facebook is Ivona, uh, the protector of plankton, uh, at Teuta. Um, but best way is to follow at um, 
NASA Ocean, and then you can find everything about science because I sometimes talk about my son and his school uh, pro- uh, projects and things like that on my personal account. But, you know, more than welcome to learn about that as well. So Ivona, the protector of plankton. Well, boy, that's a that's a that's a lofty title, and we thank you for all that you're doing in that regard. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Thank Take you, care. and thank you all for joining us and listening. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We'll see you next time on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you.